This is Moral of the Story. Interesting people telling their favorite short stories and then breaking them down to understand what makes them so good. I'm your host, Max Chapovsky. Today's guest is Dave Finkel, who is a writer and a producer who currently resides in Portland, Oregon, where he moved with his wife and three children during the pandemic, which one should always do in the middle of a global pandemic, of course. Dave has been flogging the TV screens of millions of enthralled viewers with his abject mediocrity for the better part of a quarter century. Most recently, he, along with his writing partner, Brett Baer, and creator Liz Merriweather, ran the Fox TV show New Girl from the very beginning to the very, very end, squeezing out every last morsel of comedy. In addition to that, he has run or worked on a wide expanse of shows, including the United States of Terra, for which he received a primetime Emmy, 30 Rock, what, another Emmy? Hilarious. Friends spinoff Joey, sadly no Emmy, but likely a result of a clerical mistake, and Just Shoot Me and Norm, starring Norm MacDonald. He started his career on the classic animated shows Pinky and the Brain and Animaniacs. He grew up in Los Angeles, but also lived in New York City, where he just puttered about and did bad things to himself. Nothing sexy, just hung out, really. In addition to writing for TV, Dave is a degenerate board game player, which sounds like an oxymoron, but it isn't, because it takes up the rest of what little brain space he has left. He's also an avid tinkerer, also not an oxymoron, specializing in woodworking and technology. It's a miracle that he hasn't lost any appendages, burned down the house, or electrocuted anyone. He is, however, an optimist and has his fingers crossed, said fingers still attached to his body. You can also see Dave in the feature film Baby Mama. He has like two scenes and says not a lot, but he does get to play Jason Manzuka's husband, and together they are positively delightful. And last but not least, Dave is an outstanding writer of biographies, especially his own, captioner of photos, and source of witty and delightful commentary on the world at large. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you. Wow, I couldn't have put that better myself. Thank you so much. (laughs) Perfect. I think you did put that together yourself. (laughs) Yeah, I put it together. I didn't know it would be read out loud. Uh, I should have known better. So, good. Yeah, all very wry and annoying. (laughs) Um, what is your board game of choice? Oh, man. That, that is a deep, dark question. It's funny when I've talked to people about my board games. They're like, oh, do you, like, you play Monopoly? Like, no. Uh, it goes a little nerdier than that. Um, right now, I'm very deep into these historically accurate games called coin games, which means co- counterinsurgency. So I'm playing like four different games at the same time. Like One's about... The overtaking of Cuba, Cuba Libre. Once about the uh, the fall of Algiers uh, and you know the, the colonial conflict there. Uh, one's about Colombia and the uh, it's called Andean Abyss. Um, those are the games I love because they're really they they make your brain sweat. They're super fun. Yeah, that's that is diametrically opposed to my approach to board games, which is I don't really want to think too much. Like there's a cap at how much thinking I want to do, and beyond that. I want to be able to play them relatively drunk. Yeah, no, I like those games too. Look, I, <laughs> I, I, I get there too, but like I do a lot of games with some other people who are in the same thing as me, and, and I uh, we play online, sort of like old school correspondence. So yeah, yeah I, I really like the sweaty games. So um, I have two small kids, and one day I thought, oh man, you know, I want to take them back to my. Um, middle school days when I would come home 
get home from the bus and would put on some Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain, the Warner Brothers four o'clock lineup. My thought was, you know, this would be the perfect mix of humor that's just for kids and the next level humor that only adults would appreciate, a la Family Guy Simpsons, right? And for a minute there, they were obsessed. Really? Like I was worried they wouldn't get into it. And then I started to notice some questionable content. They're three and seven. And I was like, maybe, maybe this isn't the ideal show for them quite yet. And I thought, Interesting. you know, I thought, hey, let's, well, let's do this. Let's just revisit what I recall as the charming and pure days of innocence that were the original Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain. And oh, then you're talking about the new Animaniacs. I'm talking the about new the new ones. Animes. Got it, got it, got it, got it. So we went back to the originals and holy shit, those OG versions make the new stuff look like Sesame Street. Yeah. No, I mean, that was the thing about working in those, those, in those days. Like we, we often talk about that was the most creative and fun period of writing in our lives because the, the freedom we, you know, Spielberg's move on that, sh- on those shows was like, let's make sure that it is very much operating on both ends. Like it's animated and we'll do the kids stuff, but let's make sure that it's very applicable to adults so that they're, you know, they're wrapped up in it. And yeah, yeah. I, I would uh, acknowledge that there were some moments that were like, Pushing, pushing the limits. <laughs> just the intro song, just comparing the two intro songs, like the, the, mm. the theme songs, it's I'm just, like they would never have gotten away with that today, that original mm-hmm. intro song. No, no. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we definitely wouldn't have gotten away with today. Like, <laughs> not a chance. There's stuff I wrote two years ago that we couldn't get away with today. <laughs> that is, so. Yeah, very true. So you are here to tell a story. Yep. Uh, is there anything that we should know before you start to set the stage? Uh, no, let's discuss after. I mean, I, I think uh, this this is sort of like one of my first big jobs, um, and and uh, there's there's a lot to unpack. It's it's you know we'll, we'll we'll talk about it. I know that's not the best intro I could give, but uh, I think it's best to just dive right in. Some stories don't require it, so tell me a story. So. I was born, as you said, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, being part of the Los Angeles thing was just sort of part of the DNA. I wanted to be an actor and a performer and be involved in production <clears throat> from a very early age. And I got through a friend, I got an interview with a, a, at the time, for my age range, a fairly well known uh, comic actor. And I, I met with him. And, I, and he'd had a series of. Um, Assistance. He was working on a very specific show, and they needed somebody to sort of like watch him, uh, just sort of keep on top of him. He had some habits that needed needed corralling, and uh, for health issues and and for other reasons, they brought in me. I think I was twenty at the time, and uh, my very first meeting with him, I was sort of agog that I was sitting across the table from this guy that I've seen in hundreds of movies over the course of a lifetime, and and thought he was really funny. And in my first meeting, it just sort of went sideways quickly, but in a way we were like, did that just happen where in the middle of the meeting he said, um, this is like we had a great rapport back and forth and like understanding of comedy. I'm a huge silent film nerd. And so was, so was he. So we would talk about Buster Keaton and he knew his wife and blah, 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 who I got to meet, which was very cool. And he said, what happens if I go like this? And he started to like, like lean his head towards my lap. And instinct takes over, and you go like, 
and I push his head away and he goes, and that's exactly what I want you to do. And it was like this weird sort of like benign test. And I sort of chalked it up to going, okay, he's just, he's an odd bird. Got it. Uh, I had no context for any of this before. This is literally like my first real job. So I got the job. <laughs> uh, and it, w- it went on like that. And you just learn to sort of like protect yourself in that way. And, and even though he was, he was funny and he was fun and you'd meet like you'd come into the, the trailer in the morning and there'd be all these stars in there that you never would meet otherwise. That came with a price. He was a very dark human being was going through a lot of emotional stuff, some health stuff. And again, that was my job. And one day I went to the trailer and he was in a very, very dark place. And I had learned by this point, this is probably six months into our relationship. And he was in a very dark, dark place. And then I knew what to do. Now, I should backtrack and say part of the thing about this job was every time there would be a problem of the sexual nature, I would go into the producers and I would report it and I'd say, this is happening. And their response was, well, look, he's been through a lot of assistance. He likes you. So instead of reporting it, what if we double your salary to stay? I'm 20 years old. I mean, I've never seen this kind of money in my life. So over the course of time, I think I earned four times what I'd started with because I kept reporting it. Not because I was trying to get something out of them, just because that's what you're supposed to do. That's what I was taught to do. Anyway, so this day I go into his trailer, and he's in a very, very bad place. Like, he'd sink in these dark depressions. We were shooting on the Universal lot, where the Universal Studios thing is. And the the trailer we were in was right on the edge of the park. So we had this trailer that I used to get him, uh, this this, uh, golf cart we used to get him back and forth to set. And I would pile him into the the cart, and I would take him into, into the studio itself. And what that did is because he was a very known personality, very well known, uh, people would swarm the cart and suddenly you'd see him come alive and he was so happy and so grateful and like would take the time and such a personable person in that way and talk to everybody and take pictures and his time was like he would just take the time. If, if we had an hour to, to spend doing that, he would spend that hour meeting every person and getting to know them, taking pictures, signing everything. Fantastic. If it was super dark, which this day was, I would take him to what used to be the ET ride that puts me in a very specific age range. And we get this day we got on the ET ride, and there was a kid running the uh, the, the sort of entry gate turnstile, and he started a conversation with this kid, and I sort of like watched it a little. Consu- I mean, I guess this guy was like probably sixteen years old, and he was new from like Indiana or something like that. And they started to have a rapport. Over the subsequent days, I would find this kid in the trailer more and more. Like, I'd arrive at work, or I'd come back from lunch, and the kid would be in the trailer. And they were having... And I knew his process. So, I started to get a little concerned. My hackles up. And then one day, I went to lunch, and I came back. And the trailer door was locked, which was very strange. And so, I waited outside... I had a bag of medicine with me. I remember that. I had to go to the pharmacy and pick it up. And I waited because he had a call. He had to, you know, be on stage, you know, at the end of lunch. So I had to wait there. And finally, the door starts to unlock and the kid walks out. And that's one of those moments where I wish I could go back in time. 
And I didn't realize how uh, deep and dark that was for me going forward. I don't think I put the pieces together until I was really until he he died. He's he's dead now. And I didn't put the pieces together about oh that's what abuse looks like. I didn't know that. And and I don't know what happened in the trailer. I don't know what happened in the trailer. Maybe nothing. Maybe this kid knew how to how to deal with it. My gut is he didn't. Nor do I know what the actual bits and pieces of that transaction were. But it's one of those guilty moments that I'll take with me forever because I don't know I don't know what I should have done. I I had done what I think I should have done all the way up until that moment. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until he died. Uh, all along, I thought these stories were just funny. Like, they were just weird, funny things. Like, this is a Hollywood story. Here's what happened in this trailer over the course of a year. Uh, finally, we parted ways. It ended very acrimoniously. We had a huge fight in a post-production suite where he threatened me with a cane. And I sort of said, if you want to hit me with that, I would, I would beg you to hit me with that. Because I was young. I could handle myself in that regard. Uh, and he just said, get the fuck out of here. I never want to see you again. And it ended ugly like that. And I've sort of always kicked myself that I did. I'm not into retribution. That's not my thing, but this is one of those moments that I wish I could go back and just open the door or report it or do something, especially in this age of me too. That's just one of those moments where you, ah, you can't get that back. Uh, and it's hard to figure out what should be done. Um, I will say that it's made me who I am in many ways. It's made, it's made my awareness of how the world operates around me very different. Um, yeah, it was a, a, an incredibly dark period that, that, uh, didn't, it's, it's strange. It didn't occur to me how dark it was until far, far later. So there you go. That's so crazy. Did uh, did you ever run into that kid on the lot after that? No, not ever again. I mean, I, the, as soon as the, the that show ended, I, I I worked at that lot again. Oh, five or six years later, and that ride I think is was gone by that point. I mean, I can't imagine being the the, the sort of turnstile operator at ET was the thing that you were going to do for the rest of your life. I suppose you could, but uh, no, I, I never did. I, it wasn't just him either. There were there were other people. There was a guy from there used to be a Conan show over there, and I'd see the guy from who would play Conan, not Conan O'Brien, Conan of Barbarian fame. Uh, he'd be in that trailer periodically. Like there'd be this string of like men in this trailer, and I think some could handle themselves, some not so much. Yeah, that is so crazy. It's weird. It's a weird thing, and I don't think it was until, like, he died and then Me Too. Those two things in that order where you go, like, oh, Me Too happens in a variety of ways. It's not just women. It's just sexual abuse. It's it's um, domination in a, in a wide variety of forms, and, and it's it's weird to think back on that. Uh, my relationship with them, I can handle it. And and it's it's also strange when you think about the trickle-down effect where I knew what was happening to me. I reported it to the producers. They didn't know what to do with it, so they, they just gave me more money. So they're, they're you know complicit. I'm complicit because I didn't open the door. It's not any... like He's the monster, clearly, but we're all part of it. And that's a tough pill to swallow. That's a, that's a tough one. 
Yeah, I mean, I've got to believe the the number of times you've gone back to the steps of that trailer in your head and thought about how much you would give to to have the you know fortitude to open that door. Yeah, and I kick for sure. There's that, and there's also that like the I took I must have taken him over to that ride twenty times. Mm-hmm. So was I just was I just trying to deflect? Or was I trying to make the, my job easier? Like that level of selfishness in the the walk up to what finally happened. And again, I don't know what happened. I'm I'm building my own narrative. Maybe nothing happened, but but the sort of bits and pieces that go into that are compelling of a of a of a thing to make you second guess everything. The circumstantial evidence is compelling. Well, uh, the that is a that is a dead end of a rabbit hole to go down because very much so the the way that the way that I've heard it described before and it's as as most things that are simple and intuitively true sometimes it's hard to just grasp the fact that it's that simple and it's and it's um, the the way that it's described is you made the best decision you could have made with the information you had available to you at that time. Right. And by information, I mean your life experiences, your knowledge, your perception of the situation and, um, and your own personal development. Right. Right. So it's easy to go back in time and be like, I wish I could do all these things differently, but you are coming at it now from a perspective of being an older and wiser person. Yeah, that's true. And you know, part of part of the thing, part and parcel of that is, I knew going into like I'd heard stories going into this job that, that, that not that I knew what it, what it was. I just sort of knew going into it that, like that this could be a thing. I think that my friend's father told me about this. He's like. He's a weird guy. Let's be let's be frank about it. He's a very strange guy. He's had a lot of assistance. They've all fallen by the wayside. So just know this going in with into it. Are you are you going to be cool with this? And I was like, yeah. You know, I was a fairly open minded. You know, I I knew I was fairly well aware of my sexuality, but I also I knew what my boundaries were. It wasn't like a, a question that I can I can handle this. I, I, I not a big deal. I think I was blindsided by how weird it was because it, it's like. Yeah. The, the pattern for this person it was funny, 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 head going to your lap. <laughs> and, and you know, as a person who's in a comedy, you go like, wait, is that a bit? Are we doing a bit now? And then it isn't until like a month later you go like, oh, no, that's not a bit. He just wants my lap. Yeah. He wants my pants. Um, and for a long time, that was just a funny story. But as, as it calcified and as, I, and as people started telling their stories, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. The, that's the correlation that my story is very similar to that story. It didn't ever progress for me. And, and look, there's people with far worse stories than mine. Mine is fairly benign in that, in that regard. It's the breadcrumbs that lead to the big moment that I think are more like you start to understand how the machine takes hold because it's never one. I mean, it's again, it's one guy doing one bad thing, not one bad thing, a series of bad things, but it's our collaborative effect to make it worse, yeah. that it becomes a monster that's untenable. Yes, and it's such a unique 
cauldron of circumstances and expectations and rules that don't apply that right. that makes it so um it makes it so enabling so it's like there are you know for him he had learned over time that rules don't apply to him the same way they would apply to others i mean right. if he were a fungible you know just another number he'd be gone but totally but he wasn't and over time that taught him that he could get away with certain things and he would try something little and then no repercussions and then he would escalate no repercussions because on the other side of that were producers that would just double their assistance his assistant's salary right and so right. over time there there were no checks like he went unchecked for for many many years and that doesn't excuse his behavior but it's you have you have people from two different groups one to whom the rules apply and who believe that there are certain things that are appropriate and inappropriate and who are struggling to figure out what's actually going on and then the other one who feels like they can get away with whatever they want yeah no that's 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 right i mean because the thing that's tough about it is at the, at the end of the day it's a transactional experience we just have to get this show done uh and if you've got a personality in there that knows, I'm not, I don't know that he was divisive in, in doing what he was trying to do. I think you're right. I think it was in his DNA at that point because he'd spent the better part of 60 years in this business. And this is how it's always been. It's just that's that's life. Now you've got these young people on the other side, myself, this kid, the producers. We're all young and, and we're trying to make our bones. And... Sorry, this story is not super funny. I know you set it up like, oh, he's a funny guy. He's got all these Emmys. It's going to be funny. It's not very funny, but I think it's an important story. Um, because you've got all these young people doing their jobs, trying to find their way. And are you going to be the one at age 30 going like, we have to stop this this multi-million dollar show because this is happening? At that time, no. I mean, categorically, no. Should it have been different? And wish was there a way? I mean, we didn't. I I wouldn't even be able to tell you beyond the producers what's HR. I don't even know. Right. Like, what do you do in those circumstances? Yeah. It was like go to the producers or go to the press. And I don't even know how to do the second. Right. So, uh, it, it it's a it's a thing that just sort of like it's a snake eating its own tail because it just it just keeps feeding feeding itself over and over and over again, and it just grows. So. The only way that I can think to combat it is just so you're like, you know, people talking about it and telling the story, even though I feel tremendous, tremendous amount of guilt about it, being able to tell that story now is um, in some, I don't pretend that I'm some sort of savior at all. I just wonder if like that's, if somebody out there is listening going like, oh my God, that's what's happening to my brother. That's happening to me. That's happening to my sister, whatever. Like, will it give them, obviously there's more of a platform to speak their mind now. And being able to say, no, you have to speak. You have to say what you need to say. Somebody has to advocate for people. So, And it's also like, it's also this, there's this dynamic of, especially when you add age and experience to it, that you, the producers, everyone else is sort of younger, earlier in their career and trying not to screw it up. When you have somebody who's older, more tenured, more experienced, I think there's a part of each one of those people, whether it's you or the producers or whoever, or maybe even that, that kid at the ride, that's like, 
he's been doing this for a long time. I'm sure he knows what he's doing. Like they know better, right? Absolutely. 100%. And then add to that the fact that, you know, in, at that time, for better or for worse, feelings were discounted sometimes. Like parents would tell their kids, I mean, obviously this is a, this is a generalization, which isn't fair, but it, it, there were a lot more cases of parents, you know, not recognizing what their kids are feeling, I think, on average than there are today. And what would happen is, the kid would have this suspicion that something was not right. But then the combination of, well, I'm sure they know what they're doing. Like they, they've been doing this forever. You know, they're successful. Like who am I to say something combined with, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, I know I'm feeling it, but is it really that big of a deal? You combine right. that. And I mean, and that, that sets it up for sweeping under the rug. Yeah. I mean that's that's exactly right. It, it's it's a it's a confluence. It's people trying to do their best, and you don't know what the limitations are. You don't know what in those moments you just don't know how to behave. You don't know how to how to how to act, and it's it just gets complicated. And it, and the the other thing to sort of remember is like it's easier in hindsight because you have the the the, the ability to sort of slow down time. Um, when you're when you're looking back on it, in the moment, it happens so quickly. Like all the events happen so quickly. I mean, the things I'm describing probably happen. You know, each individual event probably happens in in about two minutes. You know, yeah. Uh, this thing happens where he puts his head towards your lap is is thirty seconds. The going to talk to the producers is a minute, and the the easiest way to deal with it is well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rankle feathers above me. I'm just gonna give you more money. Yeah, I have the power to do that. Uh, and now in hindsight, it's much more thoughtful and it's much more, how would I ever approach this? Um, you know, hindsight being 2020, of course. That's armchair quarterback stuff, though. Yep, yep, right? yep. Um, so I'm sure you've thought of this a lot, but uh, what is the moral of that story to you? There's a lot of different morals to the story. The one is like, you know, if it, if it feels wrong, it's probably wrong. Uh, and do what you can do. Um, the other side of the coin is, you know, it's hard to put it into words, but it's that feeling of like, try if it, if it's a bad situation and you're in the bad situation, try and take a, a top down thirty thousand foot view and see if there's a way to at least call it for what it is. Like there might you might be powerless, you might not be able to do anything with it, but but. Look, even telling the story now, thirty years out, is a thing. So uh, you do what you could do. Um, I think we live in a time now where where there's much more ability to do something about it. So you use those because, like I said, I think if it smells like a duck, it's probably a duck. Mm-hmm. If it smells like a duck, quacks there, like it's a duck. So uh, you know, it's it's. Oh, and the secondary part of this, I, I will say, is like what's what's interesting to me is that level of abuse is much broader than it, it's interesting with the Me Too movement. There's been a lot of stories about about women uh, facing horrible circumstances, and all of them are, you know, as to the best of our knowledge, are, are are true and valued and part of the the narrative. There's not a huge amount of conversation about about men being, you know. On, on the male side of things, there was some stuff, and but I feel like a lot of it sort of like happens, and then it's 
and then and then it sort of fades. But abuse is abuse. It doesn't matter that abuse doesn't know gender, uh, and especially in this exact thing, it's it's all cut from the same cloth mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 harmful and 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 deserves to be told. I don't know if that's a clean moral, but it is a moral. For sure it is. What do you think makes that story good structurally? I will say this in two... I think there's two phases of it. Before I realized what the actual issue was, it was just a weird, funny story to me. Where it's like, can you believe this happened? Of course it happened to me. And it was like this oddball experience. So, And structurally, it lays out in the most perfect way possible where it's like it starts off small with just me and then it glows globally like that's the story structure you you want when you're writing a show it's like oh it 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 went somewhere you didn't expect Mm -hmm. from from a strict story standpoint there's a very very clear beginning middle and end kid gets a job kid realizes there's a darkness to it and then and then it goes haywire from there um and then you left where in the beginning this kid thought this thing was funny and weird and the end has an awareness of how how human it is uh, and how flawed it is. That's that's a good structure, and I think the telling of it is profound. Um, I mean, I can say that because it's my story. <laughs> but uh, but uh, also, I think I think it just sort of has all the, the sort of earmarks of a... It feels like a very dramatic, very interesting story. Mm-hmm. And then the second part to it, when I write, and, uh, you know, I write often... <laughs> The stuff I write, I write comedy, but I, I, I don't tend to write from a standpoint of like I'm not I'm not going to write a series of jokes just for jokes' sakes. I want there to be like a real solid emotional underpinning, um, and and typically I like it to be pretty dense and deep and have as much sort of chewiness to work with. Mm-hmm. I can't believe I said chewiness, gross. <laughs> but. This is one of those stories where it's like you could write this as a script and make it funny, and then the drop at the end is it gets really dark, and and that's okay. Uh, I like to like look at the Coen Brothers. It's like a lot of their movies are really funny, but there's a substance underneath it that's pretty horrifying. It's a, it's explaining the human experience in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm not I'm I'm not comparing this to the Coen Brothers at all. I'm just sort of saying that that like. I like how complex it is as a story. If it wasn't real, it would be a fascinating pitch for a story. The fact that it's real just makes it that much more compelling to me. Definitely. It's been, what, 30 plus years since this has happened. I'm sure you've told the story. I'm sure there was a period of time where you did not tell the story. And then once you started telling it, you told it often. Have you tweaked it over time? I don't think I have. I don't know. I, I really don't. I mean, it's a, it's impossible to say. Um, I don't think I've tweaked it, and I try to be cognizant of the fact that it's possible to sort of fudge facts. I'm sure there are things that are sort of um, combined for brevity's sake because I tend to get a little long-winded, uh, and I think I probably made it probably simplified things, um, and I could also say that I, like, I've highlighted this moment and, and diminished this moment for, for narrative's sake. I, I didn't talk about this. Well, to be fair, I always talked about my experience with this person. Mm-hmm. I've been very open about that. But right around you know four or five years ago, I sort of stopped telling the story because it stopped being funny and it started to 
get really real. Uh, and then somebody asked me to do one of those sort of like moth sort of things. And I found myself writing it for the first time and write, like really getting into the weeds about, about the details of it. And that's when I sort of, it was right around the time when he died, actually. Those two things conspired to um, make me take a deeper look at it and figure out a better way of telling the story because I think there's an important story in there beyond my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, not to proselytize at all. I don't think that's my point. But I do think that there's a lesson to be learned here, especially from the Hollywood bullshit that's happening right now. I was like, all the voices are important, all of them. And you can believe my story or not believe my story. It's still just a story. That's fine. Uh, I, I don't care. I'm purposely not saying this person's name for a variety of reasons because I don't know what the ancillary effect is going to be to the people around this person. I don't know who knows what. I don't know who believes what. I don't know. I, I, I'm not interested in taking down this person. He's dead. He's been dead for a long time. And he's a piece of shit for what happened to the people that I know. But he's got a family, and I don't know what they're, what they're like. Do they feel complicity? Do they not know anything? Do they, like that's all part of it, and I think that goes into the telling of the story. Where I ha- I used to be very cavalier about it and tell the story and all the bits and pieces and about who and what. And when I did it for this this story thing, I was very honest about who it was. And I've gotten to a place now where I don't think that's right. I don't. I could be completely wrong here, but I don't think that's fair to all parties. I don't think it's fair to victimize the family because of what they knew or didn't know. That's a really, that's really interesting. You know, as I think about you didn't know what happened in that trailer, you could only surmise after the fact. And so on one hand, it's like, why should I drag anybody through the mud for something that I have no actual evidence of occurring on the other hand though how it made you feel is let's just say nothing happened in the trailer how his actions made you feel what you directly observed is actually enough because it because you were a party to that because you were there right Mm -hmm. so you could look at it from that perspective and say oh no actually um if i even don't tell the trailer story at all and talk about my own experience. Of course, that's not the, you know, the same story, but it's the same characters, same plot line, right? Yep. Just not the same occurrence. Yeah. The difference is, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're right. A hundred percent. You know, what, here are the pieces I know. There was a kid, there was a locked door, there was a trailer and there was a pattern of events. Yeah. That's all I got. They could have been playing canasta or charades in there. I don't know. Uh, he could have been reading the, this kid a book. I mean, this kid had agency too. He could have made decisions. He wasn't a dumb kid. He wasn't a rube. He was, you know, he was like a skater kid. But he was also new to Hollywood. I don't even remember how old he was. I say he's 16, but he could have been 18, 19, yeah. whatever. It doesn't really matter. Uh, all I can take from it is here's my experience. Here's what I saw. Here's what I feel like I should have done. And here's my feeling now. And that's, that's the only thing I can, I can only fill in the pieces there. And then, and then the sort of the thing we said before, which is, look, this person had a wife. This person had kids. I don't know what their experience is. And I certainly don't want to be, it's not for me to take them down with this person. Right. That's not my job. 
It's valid. It's valid. Uh, I have my opinions. I have my very, very real opinions. But again, they're just opinions. So why? It's a tricky thing when you're when you're in this position to not like to know like I I don't want to. I'm not in the business of crucifying someone for the sake of crucifixion. It's not. I'm not sure what the reward would be. Again, he's dead. He's dead. He's dead. He's dead. So what's the point? Right. Um, now you could sort of argue it on the other side and go like, well, then why are you bringing the story up? I suppose, but that's stupid. Why are you asking that question? No, <laughs> but like, uh, you know, it, it's it is apocryphal. It is there is there is a value to the story as sort of like a moral narrative. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So. If we think about storytelling in general, if you if you think of you know some of the best stories that you've heard, what makes for a good story? I mean, if we're talking just structurally, uh, which I can do for a long time, we can just pause now and I'll get into a whole storytelling you know conversation with you. But uh, for for me as a as a writer, adhering to the beginning, middle, and end, but more to the point, when that ending drops, what? What's uncovered? What's the new truth? What's the reality? What 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 do we now know about this person at the center of the story that we didn't know on page one? What's the character on page three that changes by page fifteen and then again by page thirty? Mm. Those are the, the earmarks of like strong storytelling, and and I, I think storytelling is tough. It is. It's it, some stories last centuries and some last minutes. Um, and I think it all comes down to character, and it comes down to what have we learned? That 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 Joseph Campbell thing of the hero's journey is no bullshit, um, you know. And and they and it's so clearly laid out in the in the first Star Wars movie. They use in the book, uh, you know, the hero has a thousand faces. Um, that journey is so clear and concise that you know where Luke is on page one, and you know where he gets to by the end of the movie. What's the journey? And that's the journey is the, the meat. That's the that's the good stuff that I, I think can't be overlooked. Also useful life advice. Yeah, yeah, no shit. It's true. I forget sometimes, but yeah. You know, I need to send you I just saw an article that was fascinating. It looks at uh Bohemian Rhapsody through the lens mm. of the monomyth. Ooh, interesting. Like how it's a hero's journey. At first, it's like it's very ethereal, like kind of you're questioning whether it's reality, right? Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? And then you realize that it's somebody who is, you know, realizing they did something wrong. And then it, as it as it sort of travels down to um, the the part of it where the chorus comes in, well, yeah, that's like the the bottom of it. And right. that's, that's when the Faustian, the Faustian part of it, yeah. Yeah, and that's when they're they're like he sh- he's guilty, he's not guilty, he's guilty, he's not guilty, right? And then at the end of it, when he come that that the guitar solo kind of brings it out of that, out of that those depths, it is absolutely fascinating. I'm gonna mm. have to send it to you. Yeah, I would love to read that. That's that song. Not to get in the weeds on that, but like. That's one of those songs that like it never gets old to me because I've, I've I've looked at it from every different direction. My son was playing it, learned it on piano. He's twelve, and when he was like ten, he learned the whole thing on piano. And so we really went into a deep dive. And it's interesting to hear all the different points of view. Brian May has a different point of view on it than Freddie did, and Freddie did like the and but but it is it is a perfect little story. 
and and it, and and again, like you said, beginning, middle, end, emotional journey. Like that's those are the those are the three things that matter. I mean, two things that matter. Beyond that, who cares? It's funny. I'm learning it on piano too right now, and it's oh yeah, really complicated to play on piano. It's really complicated. And part of what makes it really interesting as a story is it does not follow the traditional structure of a pop song, which is verse, hook, verse, hook, bridge, right. verse. It's three or four enti- completely different sections. Like enti- you go... Different songs. Yeah, different songs. <laughs> Jam together. Correct. Yeah. Um, so Can you imagine being like... That's one of the good things about the movie. I know we're getting off base here, but like, what's great about that moment in the movie that probably happened in real life is like somebody took a gamble on this fucking crazy thing yeah and it is insane and became the biggest pop song of the modern era yeah or or of all time potentially and it keeps being huge i had this moment when i was playing some of john mayer's music too Mm -hmm. you listen to the song you listen to some of that music and you're like this is genius like you you think about it you're like this is so hard to play like it's really really difficult because not just the the frequency of the chord changes and the key changes and all the different things that happen within the song, but it's really hard. And then you realize, and they came up with that. That's the craziest thing. I totally agree with that. Like that, it's it's like you know we're a very very big Beatles family, and you sit yeah. there and you're like, oh, they created a sound out of whole cloth. Like this didn't. How did we get? Yeah, you could easily say like, "Oh, they were smoking a lot of pot." Bullshit. That comes from somewhere deep inside. Yeah, and and it's it's just something that needs to get out. I will do you one one further than that if you, if you don't mind going with me for a second. There are certain bands in my life, and I'll point specifically to the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. I hated them through my life. Hated them. It was like I, this is unlistenable to me. It just feels like meandering. It feels self important and bloated. And it wasn't until I turned like 48, 49 in there where I, ha- I was listening to something and Stella Blue came on. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those lightning out of the blue moments where you're like, oh, I can't tell you why, but I get it for the first time. Like, it's only speaking to me now. I know other people got it earlier, but for me, it was one of those things like, oh, this is a very good song. And it's complicated. It's complicated and simple at the same time. But even just on a, on a, on a toe tap level. This is a very good song. Yep. And I won't say that I love the Grateful Dead now, but I've, I've learned to appreciate them as I've gotten older. Strange, strange feeling. So uh, I feel the same way about uh, Yesterday by the Beatles, as long yeah, as we're talking yeah. about Beatles. On its surface, it's a catchy tune. It's a little slower. It's almost like a ballad. The chord progression is super simple. It's like C, G, A, like F. It's not, it's not hard. But then as you get older and you listen to it and you start to viscerally absorb the lyrics, you realize that this is, this is poetry on an entirely different level. Mm-hmm. And then now as I'm learning the song on piano, cause I always knew how to like, that's an easy chord progression, but now I'm realizing that there's, they're using like seventh chords and leading notes to get into different chords. And I'm just like, this is, it's kind of like, it's honestly kind of like what we were talking about in your bio. There is a surface level of entertainment. 
And then there is a more profound, deeper level of connection with the content where you start to feel what the artist intended you to feel with the caveat that like, it's going to be different for everybody. But I think the artist had something in mind when they were writing it. But, but I think the thing you're pointing at is, is really kind of just to take this back to writing. How's that for a segue? Yes. Uh, what's, what's interesting about that is like, it's, it's going to the, to this core belief, which is like, you don't have to trick it up to make it good. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, some of the shittiest writing is the most complicated writing. Um, there, there are people that do it very well. Like I think in his in his best moments, Chris Nolan does it very, very well. But then there's other people, there are other people out there that are writing where it's like it's it's you're overcomplicating a simple idea. Mm-hmm. Let let me give you an example. I saw In the Heights this week and with my family, which is interesting. It's not a very good musical, but it is profoundly um, provocative in that like the point they're trying to make is. Here's this place I love. This place I grew up that informed me as a human being, that made me who I am. Here are the smells. Here are the sights. Here are the sounds. Here are the rhythms. I'm not going to give you much more than that. I just want you to know why I love this place. And I think that's the best kind of storytelling because it's letting you do the work of connecting emotionally. I think In the Heights was a good version of that. I think Hamilton was a better version of that because the story is so clear. You know going in, this guy you're watching, you're gonna he's you're gonna lionize, he's gonna die by the end of this. There's no question about that. That's done. So what's fun about it is watching this immigrant who came from nowhere build his life brick by brick, simply doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this. And we know he's on a he's on a rail to die, but what's the story? What's the inner story there that makes it compelling? And that is one of the more compelling stories I've I've seen dramatized in, in decades. Like it's every time I see it, and I've seen it a bunch of times now, it gets in because like, yeah, I know he's gonna die. I know he's gonna die. And then but like there's little things along the way, it's like, oh, his son dies. Sorry if I'm ruining Hamilton for you. <laughs> it's on TV now. You should be you should you should see it at this point. But like the life experience of the person that you know is gonna die is just as compelling as the overall story of like a guy who gets shot in a field. So, I, you know, and it's a very simple story. Um, and you can see the progression from In the Heights to Hamilton. And it's a, and again, I'm not taking anything away, anything away from what they did in In the Heights. But I think the story metabolized in Hamilton. I loved Hamilton. I watched it actually on TV. And uh, I had that soundtrack on repeat to the point where my wife was like, can you stop, please? Can you just... Oh, yeah. It's crushing. It's, it's, a, it's like it's a masterpiece, and I know it's sort of like people are probably turning on it and going, "Oh, it's so passe," but like, sure, fine. But it's sort of like as landmark as Jesus Christ Superstar and Hair was in their time, which is such a stupid thing to say. Of course they were. It's like saying the Beatles were a great band. Uh, even if you hate the Beatles, you have to acknowledge that they did things that hadn't been done before. Hundred percent. So, what what advice would you have for people that want to learn the craft of storytelling? I, I can't stress this enough, and this is what I tell young writers, and I mentee a lot of kids, th- that idea of keep it simple, stupid. Because it's, it, it, you know, there really are only seven stories, as Joseph Campbell said, uh, and Aristotle said. Um, that's just fact. And we can try and be different. We can try and be unique, and that's good. Being unique is great. Telling your story in your way is perfect. But don't work too hard to make it 
I think there's this weird sort of thing that happens when, especially when you're younger, is like, I'm going to break the mold and I'm going to do it a different way. No, the mold has worked for thousands of years. Like, storytelling is storytelling. There's no secret to how it works. It's not, a, it's not magical. There's no alchemical thing. It's just, it's just, can you tell your story in a more, you can't get honest enough. Like, the best stories ever, what makes Romeo and Juliet so great is we're able to get into both Romeo and Juliet's head and understand what their motives are. And then by the end of the thing, when, when I'm not going to give away the ending, because <laughs> it's a big one. But uh, in the end, you you understand it, and you can you have the ability to look at it and go like, "Well, fuck, you were twelve. Why? Like, you're so stupid. If you would have waited two minutes, you got out over your skis, you dummies." Uh, but but like, that's a great way to tell a story. Is like they love each other. I love you. You love me. I'll do anything for you. And if that means killing ourselves, and that's that's what it's going to be. Um, Thought you weren't going to give it away. I always fall into that <laughs> trap. <laughs> uh, but but I think it is one of those things that you just you can't learn well enough. Make sure you're telling a clean, clear narrative first, then gussy it up. Yeah. I, I, I can't stand it when I read a script for the first time and it's just like it's all pomp and circumstance and like I, I don't want to have to dig to find the story. I want to know the story first and then you can do your, your, your color commentary on top of that. I love it. What's a favorite book you have that you think Get storytelling right, man. There's there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot. I knew this question was coming, uh, and and I and I really tried to synthesize it down to its um, simplest terms. The most recent book that I've read that I find is such a great story is um, the Wind Up Bird Chronicles. Same guy that wrote IQ84. It's a very dense book. You really have to pay attention to it. Uh, but it is the story of a man trying to figure out his life over the course of many odd circumstances. Uh, but again, he's telling a very simple story in a complicated way. And that's okay because I have compassion for this person as we go along. And then in the end, like I said before, I understand more about his behaviors at the end than I did at the beginning. And I feel like, I feel like I was let in on a secret, which I like, uh, I would also put, um, in a very strange way, Isaac Asimov into that into that sort of cauldron as well. I just read Foundation for the first time in my life, mm-hmm. which if you haven't read Foundation, in many ways defies everything I'm talking about, in many ways is exactly the thing I'm talking about. Uh, Foundation is a strange story in that it takes place over the course of thousands of years. Uh and none of the characters from chapter to chapter link completely except that they know of the story of the person that they're following. So it's an interesting story in that it's not a it's not a, a, a it's not a hero's journey per se. Mm. It's an ideological journey, but it's it, it's sort of if you can take ideology and make it a character what you're watching from the very beginning of the book to the very end of the book, and it goes over the course of many books, but in the first book, you're watching how ideology as a character is corrupted. Oh. Um, and it's, and it's heavy duty, but it's also, it's like you, he, what he does masterfully is he walks you through every single aspect of it in the most simplest terms and then shows you every aspect it shows you like the facets of it and how it corrupts and how sometimes it's beneficial. Sometimes it's beneficial to one and not all. Sometimes it's beneficial to all and not one. So it doesn't 
follow strict narrative progression, but in its own weird way, it does. So then uh, one other question is, Mm -hmm. if you could say one thing to 20-year-old Dave Finkel, what would it be? Huh. You know, I tend to be a gregarious um, extrovert with an awareness of my um, my my sort of moral compass. I made a lot of mistakes up to that point and made a lot of mistakes after that point. Like, I, you know, I'm human. Uh, some I look back and I really, like, chew on it because I, I could have done better and, and I know I can't fix it. And some I can. Um, I suppose what I would say to 20-year-old Dave is, like, you're smarter than you give yourself credit for. Believe in what you're seeing, and and if if you're gonna try and because I you know I've lived the life of trying to like walk the walk of of like trying to like if I'm if I'm call it like I see it uh, to better to greater and lesser effect. This if we're if we're talking specifically about this story, I wish that I could tell myself that like there's a way to back up what you're feeling. And you need to do something about it. Um, even if I would have just told my parents, you know, I didn't even, I didn't, we didn't even talk about that. It's like, I wish I would, my parents were so supportive of me doing this thing and blah, 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 but they didn't know the inner story because realistically, I didn't know my inner story. I didn't know what was going on really. I was living day to day and just trying to make the best of a bad situation. And, and frankly, you know, sort of like the producers who enabled, enabled it. By accident, I'm going to give them some credit too, and I'm sure I'll get a lot of flack for that, or I could get a lot of flack for that. You don't know what to do in that situation, and the only way to find your bearings is to talk about it. And I think that I thought it was funny. Can you believe this is happening to me? When the reality is, like, oh no, this is happening, and it's if it's happening to you, then it's happening to others. So getting a little more strength in that way probably would have been, you know, I'm a generally strong person, but that should have been something like I stayed in this for a year, a solid year. Uh, Should I have done more? You you know, you can do more. Dead end rabbit hole. Yep. There's it's true. um, There is. That's my nickname. (laughs) I thought it was a well aging turtle. (laughs) <laughs> the, that too. <laughs> the the best um the best way to look at it is better late than never mm-hmm. because whatever opportunities you didn't take advantage of then you have subsequently and you are intentional about it now. Right. Right. Um so I think that does it. Dave Finkel, writer and producer. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, it was a great, great time. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a fun dive, but it was an effective dive. So uh, thank you for letting me uh, have this platform. I enjoyed it as well. Uh, for show notes and more, head over to mosspod.org. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcast on. This was Moral of the Story. I'm Max Trapowski. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next time.